Hello, everyone. I'm Philip Mead. And I'm Scott Stigmeyer. And I'm Danny Webb. And this is The Blackest Eyes, a place for intelligent conversation about horror movies. Today, we are recording the final episode in the first season, which has been devoted to exorcism movies. The film we are about to discuss is The Conjuring, directed by James Wan, released in 2013. We hope you've enjoyed this first season of episodes. We're going to be back very soon with season two. So be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and of course, subscribe to the podcast through your favorite podcast catcher. If you like the show, you can always support us for $5 a month through Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash the blackest eyes. We're glad you're with us. Here we go. All right, guys, final episode of the first season. This is pretty cool. We've talked about this will be six horror films devoted to exorcism. And after this one, we can talk about this at the end of our episode here, but I'm going to ask you so you can already be thinking about it. Which of the six has been the most fun for you to record and talk about? Not necessarily your favorite movie, but which podcast in the first season did you enjoy the most? We'll chat about that at the end. I think this is going to be a fun conversation. They've all been good. So yeah, let's just jump into it. The Conjuring 2013. All three of us watched it today. It's fresh in our minds. It's the first time that I had seen the film. You guys had seen it previously. Uh, So I think the first thing to do is just to get a quick plot summary and then jump into some of these details. If I remember correctly, Danny, you're up for the summary. So lay it on us, man. All righty. You guys can fill in where I've left off. Right. Uh, the Conjuring opens with Ed and Lorraine Warren showing a video to a college course. Uh, they are two paranormal investigators. And in that clip, we are introduced to the infamous doll Annabelle, who will play a small role in this film and a larger role in the series as it moves forward. After the crawl, we have a flashback to um, 1971 as a young family arrives at their home. They've got an emo teen that's unhappy, a dog that refuses to enter the home. Their youngest child finds a music box, and uh, if we know anything about uh, horror movies, we know that that's not going to bode well. And and we've already had many films in this season that you know where the the demonic presence was tied to an item, and that's going to be the case here. Things start going bad pretty much immediately when they enter the house. There's just the normal weird paranormal stuff. It's colder than it should be. There's a creepy basement that they discover behind some boards. All the clocks stop at a certain time, 3.07 a.m. at night. Um, Things escalate pretty quickly, and we um, have the family call in Ed and Lorraine two famous paranormal investigators to to help them with this. Lorraine has recently had a bad experience during an exorcism and she has got some uh, some damage to her soul. She is uh, she is weak and um, and her husband is scared for her. So this is their first time back into the uh, 
into the fray after after that occurrence. When they move into the house to help, things go bad very, very quickly. And it's discovered that there is a demonic presence that has attached itself to the family. Uh, it is tied to, and this is something I want to talk about later, it's tied to the uh, Salem Witch Trials, to a witch from, from the trials or adjacent to the trials. The, um, the witch has famously has killed her, her child, sacrificed her child, and then, and then killed herself on the property. After some investigation, they find out that there's not just in that house, but all over the 200 acres of the original property, there have been awful things happening. Children drowning, uh, mostly it's involved dead, dead children, but a lot of suicides and, um, and murders all along the property. As, um, as the film advances, eventually we end up with the mother possessed by the spirit and Ed and Lorraine, Ed more than Lorraine, having to perform uh, an exorcism. So this is how it fits in with our season. And the exorcism is, instead of being ran by a priest, is, uh, is handled by Ed, who is working from the, the Catholic rot. Um, it has another as all these films have had, that's pretty cool exorcism uh, scene with a lot of you know creepy things happening. And uh, in the end, all things work out pretty well, though we are hinted at uh, you know there are things coming in the future with the uh, with the Annabelle doll. All right, very good job, very well done. We'll just stick with you here for a second, Danny. Such a good plot summary. Overall impressions on the film. Uh, what was your takeaway? We, we, we talked a little bit before we recorded, and I, I really, really enjoyed The Conjuring. And I also remember really, really enjoying The Conjuring when I first watched it. But in the years, that's, what's that, 2013? So in the seven years between those two watchings, I had forgotten almost everything about it. So uh, I'll have to see going forward if it remains memorable. But uh, but I, I did enjoy it. I think it has some amazingly creepy moments, some great jump scares. It's you know, it's big budget, glossy horror done correctly. Uh, it's I, I, I really, really liked it. What about you, Scott? What's your take on the film? Yeah, I saw it in the theater when it first came out. And... Um, I remember seeing it um, and remember really liking it. And I actually do remember, remembered quite a lot of it. Um, so I did, hadn't seen it again till today. So I watched it again. I like the film. I think it's really good. It has, I have a couple of criticisms, but overall I give it a really high score. It is entertaining. It like, um, it's got a great cast and James Wan's a good director. And I think it's a good story. Um, yeah, overall, for me, very enjoyable. I enjoyed the movie, too, although it is certainly a classic haunted house movie, classic supernatural film. Uh, a lot of the elements that are there, even a lot of the dialogue, is seems to be pretty rehearsed uh, to me. But what allowed the movie to move forward in a way that was good and beneficial was, number one, that based on a true story, so we're dealing with real characters here, which just always makes it a little bit more interesting at least it does to me, knowing that some of these events are actually based on uh, real happenings. And then uh, I loved Ed. Uh, I loved Ed portrayed by Patrick 
uh, Wilson. Just thought he was incredibly strong. A lot of good performances, but I, I really, really like Patrick Wilson's character. Uh, he did a good job of being confident and yet scared. I've seen this before, and yet every experience is still a new experience, so I really don't know what I'm getting into. I thought he handled all of those nuances quite well. But there's a few parts of the movie that I'm like, ah, I don't know. And, you know, we'll get into some of those, some of the weaker elements as well. But overall, sounds like all three of us thought that it was pretty well done. I want to talk about the title sequence because this is one of my favorite title sequences that I've seen in a very long time. It's not that it's flashy. It's not that it's super technical or anything. But I loved what they did here. They put the true story text on top of uh, the that that came first, this kind of typewriter text that says basically this is a true story. And then it scrolls slowly up with this bright yellow, the Conjuring logo that was just so effective, so well done. And then from there, we scroll to a third tier, which brings us in uh, to the next scene of the film, looking into a, a house. It was simple, but incredibly uh, effective. Did either of you pick up on that at all? Or was it just a strange thing that I thought was cool? It may have just been a strange thing that you thought was cool. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I did not pay much attention to the opening. Yeah, Philip, I think you often kind of notice the begin that opening sequence. It seems like you've mentioned that before, whether you thought it was effective or not. I like. I mean, I just didn't notice. <laughs> That's so interesting. It is the beginning, the first five minutes of a. You know, they say. I don't know if this is true or not, but they say the first two to three minutes that a person walks inside a church will determine whether or not they're coming back. I don't know if that's true, uh, but because of that, we put a strong emphasis on uh, our parking our parking lot and our ministers and who's out there greeting folks and whatnot, because I take that seriously. The beginning of a film does impact me uh, pretty significantly as to whether or not I'm excited about what's coming, if I'm anticipating good things or not title sequences uh, like in the James Bond films the, the the cannon barrel the the you know you're looking down the the gun barrel those kinds of sequences have always fascinated me but it sounds like you guys couldn't really care less so <laughs> it's it's okay we all have our little things don't we yeah yeah i you know it's funny <laughs> Um, little off the subject, but not much. Um, the, one of the very first things I remember about you, Philip Mead, is that long time ago we kind of met in the blogging sphere, and I remember you had like a series on your blog of comparing and contrasting the different James Bond opening sequences of, like you just said, the gun cannon, and how they were different, and it was very detailed, it seems, and I wasn't really... I, you know, I, I, I'd like James Bond, but I never really paid that much attention to it. But it was very interesting reading you analyze that. So, yeah, I, I mean, it seems like that's kind of one of your things. You, you uh, take a lot, pay a lot of attention to that title sequence. Well, title sequences aren't easy. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's full directing crews that are hired just for opening sequences. And I, that fascinates me. Like in the original, first time I saw Halloween, I always wondered, how did they do this? How did they do that with the pumpkin? And then if you if you um, watch the documentary, uh, the or the director's commentary on the thing, John Carpenter's the thing, he he talks about how the opening sequence. Do you remember the thing opening? So maybe you don't. If this doesn't, but it the the light starts shining through and kind of breaks through, and then it makes the outline of the thing on the black behind the black. It's so stunning, 
And Carpenter talks about how that was one of the most difficult shots of the whole film. So, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I didn't think we'd spend this much time talking about opening sequences in general, but um, they, they really do fascinate me and set me up uh, for the rest of the film. But let's go ahead and get into it. You know, one of the very first things that if I was going to be a critique, I don't think it's just of this film, but it's just in general of supernatural haunted house films. I was thinking this and the movie, and then the movie kind of answers it, which was so cool. About 15 minutes after I jotted down this little thing, the movie answers my own question. And I thought, wow, how neat is that? But that is, you know, why do supernatural haunted house movies always start with these little subtle haunting moments? Why doesn't the demon or the spirit just start wreaking havoc right from the start? You know, why does it have to be this slight little noise and then this little footstep, maybe somewhat of a, did I really just hear a voice and a tingling down the back of your spine? And it's 20 minutes in and you're like, come on, you know, we know it's going to increase in intensity. We know you're going to get freaked out. Let's get on with it. Um, maybe for some people, those elements of haunted house movies is compelling and they enjoy the buildup. Usually I'm left thinking, can, let's just get to what's going to happen so we can see the action unfold. But then later in the movie, during one of the lectures of the Warrens, they talk about infestation that leads to oppression, that leads to possession, which was unbelievably helpful uh, for me to, to make sense of how this is progressing in the film. Any piggyback on that or thoughts on those elements? Yeah, I, I like the suspense buildup. So I kind of like the slow buildup, um, but it seems like they always follow this pattern. Yeah. When Ed Warren was explaining it, I, I've seen that explained like that before. Maybe I just remember it from the first time I saw the movie. But, um, you know, you, those particular words, infestation, oppression and um, and possession. About 10 years ago, I read a number of books about um, possession and exorcism and the Catholic rite of exorcism. It was just a interesting rabbit hole I went down and maybe I picked it up from there. So I, I think that's a real thing, um, at least amongst the exorcist world. Yeah, it does kind of help explain why it starts slow and then accelerates. Well, the concept of demonic oppression is something that, pastorally speaking, I talk about a great deal uh, because we can get into the discussions. We've touched on it over the season as to whether or not believers uh, can be actually possessed by a demonic presence or whatnot. But I think all of us would agree that there is certainly forces of evil that are trying to oppress us. And that's true for everyone, believer or non-believer, not fighting against right uh, flesh and blood, against powers, principalities, and so forth. And so it was just neat to see that worked in. And of course, the Warrens clearly in the film are very spiritual people. And uh, so that language didn't come as a great surprise to me. What were some of the elements, Danny, will come to you here, that you found to be effective in the movie? Maybe some scares. You talked about there were some good jump scares. There were some uh, elements that you found in your plot synopsis you said were uh, you thought were well done. Maybe highlight a couple of those and let's talk about them. What did you think really specifically worked in the movie? I think one of the things that works really well, and I think always works well for me at least with horror films, is the uh, the presence of the children and how much of the point of view is from the children's point of view. I just find that any horror that's happening to children is more believable. And I thought the really cool device that they came up with for this movie was that hiding clap. Uh, 
where they would put a blindfold on the, the, they play hide and seek basically, but with the person seeking with a blindfold and they ask the people to clap to let them know where they're at and they try to find them blindfolded. What a great device for a horror film. And it comes to, you know, to, to its peak in a scene where the, uh, where the mother has ended up in the basement and she hears a voice say, do you want to say, uh, to play hiding clap? And then we see these ghostly hands come out from behind her, right, right next to her and clap twice and the lights go out and she screams. And I thought it was incredibly effective, but that entire, that conceit of the hiding clap, I thought was played perfectly in the movie. Yeah. You know, I was wondering if the three claps game, I'd never heard of that before where you're blindfolded in three claps. Maybe you guys knew about it. I was wondering if that was a, a game of the time in the early seventies or something that didn't quite make its way to the next generation. I don't know. Either of you know, I, I was not aware of that. I was wondering that same thing. Is that something that people do? It seemed incredibly dumb and dangerous in a two story house that you've never been in before. Yeah, it was the, kind of like Marco the, the Polo mom almost water. drops down, you know, falls down the stairs when she's playing at the in one scene. Right. Yeah, I'd never heard of it before. I, I my I didn't Google it or anything, but I just kind of took it as maybe this is a family thing. I mean, they've got five daughters. Um, uh, I don't know what their age range is, but maybe like fourteen to seven or something like that. Maybe it was just a family game. It was it was cool. I really, really I, I wrote that down too, Danny. For me, those were there were two really I have three, but those were two of the really scary scenes and they had both of them had to do with that clapping and the the entity or the ghost or the demon playing the game, first with the kids and or maybe they were both with mom. I think they were both with mom. Well, anyway, but yes, that one where she's at the top of the stairs, it's dark. She's got a lit match and she's trying to peer down the stairs because she heard something scary. And then, yes, those those hands clap right next to her head. And uh, it, it shook me. It sound, maybe it doesn't sound scary, but it was it was a really, for me, a very scary moment. Though I do wonder why this family didn't invest in some flashlights. I know. Why were they using matches to light their yeah, way? That, that was candles. one of my right. points of critique of the film. It's the deal with the matches, you know. I, it, it, the, uh, those, the, the matches are gimmicky in a way that's bad. The, the hiding clap is gimmicky in a way that's good, though. I think it's effective, and it kind of reminds me of the uh, one of the Paranormal Activity films. Uh, has It's the one set in the 80s. They have the camera mounted to a, a fan, with rotating fans, so it sweeps the room and then sweeps back. So, you know, while you're away from the image, stuff sets up and then it comes back to reveal it. And it's so gimmicky, but so effective. And I think the hide and the clap game works the same way. Well, the reason the one in the cellar with the clapping behind her works so well is because the misdirection was set up absolutely perfect. And she's backing up and we're all worried about what's down the stairs and we're following her point of view down the stairs we're we're waiting for the scene to go back for the big scare the big jump scare the big reveal of what's at the bottom of the stairs and then it's just a couple of simple claps that scares us to death very very well done in the cellar it's talking about the period though you know what did you think about the language itself the dialogue of the film i didn't necessarily hear and this doesn't bother me things like this really don't bother me about movies but just wanted to see what you all thought about it there wasn't a whole lot of 70s idiomatic expressions. I think at one point, one of the daughters says groovy. 
and I was like, okay, there, there it is. That's what I'm looking for. But did they, did they talk in a way that seemed like it lent itself to the period or, you know, were you really not too worried about it? The, uh, the scene that you're talking about with the groovy, um, see, I, I thought was, oh, they remembered they were in the seventies because it, it absolutely does not have any kind of period awareness other than that. The house itself seems like it could have, you know, it, it seems like it's furnished from the thirties and like, there's very little that fills in the time period. Yeah. His, the dad's, you know, um, Roger's haircut, uh, was definitely a seventies thing, but there wasn't a whole lot there. Uh, and it, and it wasn't really all that relevant, right? The technology was definitely dated to seventies. So it was kind of fun to see them doing modern day kind of stuff. Let's set up the cameras and let's get the sound and let's make sure we have the evidence. This is going to look a lot different for a movie that's uh, being recorded in, you know, real time today, but they did it and they set it up with the big flashes and those massive microphones and everything. And I thought that was fun to watch. Anything, uh, the period piece, Scott, that stuck out to you? No, I, um, yeah, I caught the groovy too. That was, yeah, it, it jumped out because it wasn't uh, heavily 70s. Yeah, there was a haircut, the cars, the technology, a little bit the way they were dressed. I mean, they weren't dressed like mod hippies or anything. Like, you didn't see any of that. But the, the way uh, Ed and, and Lorraine were dressed, struck me a little bit of the time but it wasn't distracting it wasn't you know uh, real noticeable at all you know as we're kind of just talking about a couple of things that may have bugged us just a little bit or i've mentioned a couple of things i'll just mention one more because the rest of the stuff i have to talk about is all really positive stuff Uh, but i found the dialogue itself not just the fact that it seemed like it wasn't necessarily in the 70s but just the the dialogue itself at times was was really forced and just seemed like they felt like we have to say something related to what's happening right now so we'll just figure something out to say so for example uh, i can't lose you you won't we were meant for this moment god put us together for this moment these things i'm just kind of like okay you know i i guess that needed to be there it's kind of a the heartfelt good moment but uh there were moments like that, that that I thought were really forced. It didn't work for me. Anything stick out for you guys like that? I think there was a lot of cheesiness in the um, in the dialogue for sure. I, I don't know if it was particularly worse than most mainstream horror films, but uh, uh, the the scene that you're referring to, or the moments between Ed and Lorraine, were very cheesy, and from two actors that I very like, very much like. So they were delivered fine. They were just cheesy lines. Yeah, you know, what's we have been on a roll with some fantastic films even before this season started. We've been reviewing some uh, just powerful movies where the dialogue has been very, very good. So it's I haven't sensed a lot of that in a lot of the movies we've watched recently. You know, I just think about things like Lighthouse and uh, Midsummer. It's just a dialogue that's very, very compelling. And in this movie, it seemed like there was a it just wasn't the point. The, the movie was not about speeches. It was about what was happening in the house. And I thought that showed up from time to time. Yeah, this yeah. film doesn't have anything important to say, right? It's not almost every other film this season we've, you know, we've had, uh, it, they've had some pretty serious underlying things. This is a pretty straightforward mainstream horror movie. Yeah, I didn't, um, I, I, yes, a little cheesy, the Ed and Lorraine thing. 
but not distracting, you know, not, not terrible. I've got a couple of criticisms of the movie, um, but that's not particularly one of them. Yeah, what got me, and I've said this before with other horror films in the past, that I, I thought the, the, the physical effects were just a little over the top. I mean, I, I, you know, there's the people crashing in, you know, and you expect some of that in the horror movies, particularly exorcism movies. But, um, you know, the at the end, because this starts out for most of the film as kind of a haunted house movie. And then it at the end, it becomes an exorcism movie. But, you know, the way the way her chair went up, levitated and then turned upside down. And it just some of the activity could have been toned down a little bit. And I would for me, that would have been a little more uh, subtle, a little more effective. But that's not a huge criticism. It's just something that I've often felt. You know, the the part of that that I noticed, Scott, is when she fell what seemed like 25 stories right. and uh, through walls, breaking through, you know, uh, all kinds of wood structures and barriers. And then she basically was fine. Uh, it seemed like that should have killed her <laughs> for sure. Falls down this uh, wooden shaft. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I definitely noticed that. Did, did you think, though, it's so really interesting that you say that because during the exorcism itself... I was actually thinking, hey, they're kind of toning it down, you know, I, with a, the, a, basically a sheet over her face. So we're not seeing the visual uh, expressions like we saw with a Reagan and the head spinning around and all the, 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 the blood and the scarring and the it was basically blood on a sheet until, as you mentioned, at the very end there, there's levitating that takes place and yeah some moments where we're like oh I, I don't know but it it wasn't necessarily gruesome though right as much as some of the other films that we have seen this season is that fair to say yeah i don't think i don't think it was gruesome and 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 you know it wasn't just that levitation scene it was right all that surrounded it you know she's throwing these like three grown men around the room and they're flying in the air and, and like you said nobody's getting a broken neck mm-hmm. out of all that and and then a shotgun appears at some point and gets fired and um it, it and then there were other scenes that led up to the it, there was a lot of these sort of physical very actiony i it may be a little bit strong to be effective i thought yeah well the one scene where the daughter is thrown across the room into the wall she should have died there is absolutely no way you stand up from that uh, and be perfectly fine so it definitely had some over the top and maybe that's just a factor of the uh, you know the pg-13 and the you know when you cut it you, you can't have really traumatic injuries in a movie that's like this yeah, and I think, you know, when all those elements start coming together, it, it, it shows that there is a sense of chaos in play, right? People are getting thrown around, gunshots happening, levitating, that things are out of control. And it's it's not a physical presence that we're dealing with here. It's a supernatural, uh, or a, it's, it's not a, a normal, it's not a human presence that we're dealing with. It's a supernatural presence. And yeah, maybe they just ratcheted up a little too much. Um, but I think that showing the confusion and that this is completely out of their ability to deal with seemed to be kind of the what they were going for there. What else? You said you might have a couple of critiques, Scott. Um, well, you know, that's that's mainly the one I wrote down was that I just, you know, it just seemed like the effects were a little large. Ed and Lorraine, 
yes, they're based on real people. I think that's fascinating. In the past, I have read about them because they're in, they're real people. They're both deceased now. She, uh, uh, Lorraine died maybe a couple of years ago. And they were involved with the Amityville story as well and a number of others that have been made into movies. So I've actually read a little about them and then did again today. Their story is really complex and not as pristine as in the movie. I'm fine with the way they did it in the movie. It's not trying to tell everything historically accurately. It's a movie. It's based on a true account. And uh, I liked the Ed and Lorraine in the movie a lot more than I think I like the Ed and Lorraine real real life. But um, no, so my only real criticism was I let's let's tone down some of the physical effects. Are, are, do you want to talk about Annabelle? Or is that something you want to get to later? Sure. Yeah, I've got it written down here to discuss. We can move into that if you want. I'll just say I completely agree with what you just said. Uh, I, Ed, I thought, was the best, the most compelling part of the film. He was very, very good. I want to talk about his performance during the exorcism in just a few minutes. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, if you read a little bit about the real Ed and Lorraine, you're kind of left thinking, well... I think I'll stick with the movie version of these guys. Oh, ab- absolutely. Uh, I really like Ed and Lorraine in the movies, and I have been a uh, kind of a hater of the real Ed and Lorraine for, for about 30 years, I guess. Uh, that's probably not a story for this podcast, however. Um, I was want to say, speaking of Ed and Lorraine, and one of our problems um, was the sort of real cheesy, lovey-dovey dialogue there. Uh, but what positive marriage and parenting models we had in this film how rare is it in a horror film to have two loving couples and two sets of good parents? Like the, it, it's actually almost stunning to get a, an entire horror film where these are kind of role model parents and couples that you can, you know, they're going through tough times, but they're sticking together and there's, there's love based on their, you know, their decisions are based on their love for another and their, their kids are treated fairly. It's, it's actually pretty amazing. Yeah, and we've said this often. That's a good point, Danny. I really, I really respond to that too. And and we've said this with I think maybe all of the exorcism movies that we have reviewed. And I'll say it for this one too. It treats religion seriously. It doesn't, in my opinion, it does not mock Christianity, which so much popular culture does. I had a seminary professor once who said that many in the world who are not church people look at the church, look at Christianity, and think they're two things. They think Christians are mean, and they think Christians are stupid. Mean and stupid. So we got to try and not be mean and stupid or come off that way. They don't. You know, these people seem compassionate. They're smart. They, they're portrayed as devout. They, 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 you know, they wear the cross, and they just talk like they're respectful part of the church, the Christian church. They talk to their their priest and none of these people are like super corrupt and you know have some kind of dark disgusting secret it's just sort of a simple maybe simplistic but that's okay it's a positive in a way it's a positive story about family and um christianity in a way the most important part of the movie for me from a worldview perspective is danny just got through saying that the movie presents loving parents, loving couples. And yet the climax of the movie is the mom's trying to kill her kid. That's the most important part of the movie for me. And I want to, I want to talk a lot about that. Uh, 
So while we're here, why don't we just jump into it and don't forget, you know, the Annabelle. I've got it written down. We can come back to Annabelle. But earlier in the film, Carolyn says, the mom says, how could a mother do that to her kids? And she's talking about the, what was her name? Bathsheba, I guess, who had killed her child off as a sacrifice. And this is what put into motion all of the hauntings and everything else that's taking place. And she committed suicide at 307 and all of that kind of stuff. But she's almost disgusted at the idea that a mom could harm her children. How could someone possibly do that? That's so outside of the realm of possibility. And she's right because she loves her kids. And she's a loving mother, a loving wife, all the things that we, we just mentioned. And yet, she's about to kill her kid. And you say, well, that's what possession movies are all about. They're about to kill her kid. Yeah, but, but the point for me there is that she didn't know that about the previous mom, that there is possession that is taking place, that there are circumstances that we don't know that were happening within this previous mom that caused her to harm her family. And one of the things, pastorally speaking, that I try to help my flock see is that we tend to have a, a, a habit of thinking that other people's decisions are simple. And they're easy to understand. And we can live other people's lives so much better than they can by just saying, here's what you do and here's what you don't do. But we never want people to think that our lives and our decision making is that simple. Because we know, don't we, that it's so much more complicated than it looks like on the outside looking in. We know that there's many moving parts and there's multiple layers and there's history and there's things that people don't know about what goes into decision-making processes. And we have to be patient and demonstrate grace with people when they're doing things that we think are just absurd and are harming themselves and are harming others. Uh, the response to that is not just a blanket condemnation uh, as much as it is, let me walk beside you and see what's happening here. That's not to say uh, that there's not behavior where we don't immediately condemn it and say it's wrong and uh, there, that's not something that can be good. But it's condemning the behavior, not the person, right? We, we, we need to be able to understand that there are many times complex issues in people's lives. People's lives are not simple that lead to actions that can be head scratching as we're on the outside looking in. And then of course, when the mom, when the exorcism works, and that has rid the mom, and she's in the cellar, and she's with her kid who looks terrified, and she's like, what's going on here? And then she, of course, grabs her the next scene and says, I love you. I love you so much. I love you so much. Now she's going to have a better understanding as to what happened uh, previously. That whole sequence, to me, um, is one of the reasons why I, I thought the film had something to say. Any follow-up on that, guys? I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm with you on those observations, Philip. I, I think that um, one of the, as I understand, you know, thinking as a, um, as a, a clergyman, okay, a pastor who now a professor, what I try to, one of the things I try to, or have said about the enemy, the devil and his legions, is that they turn things upside down. Okay, it's a it's a it's a reversal. It's a um, so the most intimate, loving relationship there should be in the world 
um, should be parent and child, okay? Especially we tend to think mother and child because they have this symbiotic relationship where she nurtures within her body these children and gives birth to them. So that is a very special thing. Christians have often observed that with how they portray Mary and the infant Jesus as something kind of amazing and spiritual. And then to turn that upside down where the, the one that should be the most nurturing now becomes the most threatening. So yeah, it's that upside down world uh, that, that the devil, the enemy, uh, tries to bring about. So yes, I think you're right. I think that's part of why this movie is very powerful, why a lot of exorcism movies are powerful. It's a, often a child and a parent, uh, even a mother and a daughter, like in the original Exorcist. Although it's, you know, she doesn't try to kill her daughter. But in here, yes, yes, exactly. It's that um, complete upside-downness. Yeah, exactly right. And she has a better appreciation for the history of the house and the history of other people's uh, actions that she didn't have because now she's lived through them. Uh, very, very important. It's the whole walk a mile in somebody's shoes, right? Uh, there, there is a lot of truth to that. Very important. Okay, now let's talk about uh, Danny. Anything you want to add to that conversation? No, I just it did when you were talking to Ridge. It reminded me of we always say that uh, everybody thinks their job is so difficult and everybody else's job is so hard. So it's it's, it's kind of that situation. It's it's so difficult to completely put yourself in someone else's uh, situation, and it's more than just empathy, right? It's just absolutely nearly impossible to to walk in someone else's shoes. Yeah, but, but I think understanding that, right, knowing that I, I can't understand, so I, I have to keep myself from uh, forcing interpretations on this person right. that, that I don't know. Yeah, that's, I just, that for me, that's so important. And, it, and it's important in pastoral ministry because, uh, you know, over the last six months of COVID, man, more and more pastors, we're seeing unprecedented number of pastors quitting, and I totally get it because it's so frustrating uh, to watch people self-destruct and to uh, get upset over things that you think are basically innocuous and to dive into conspiracy theories where they're drowning and cutting one another over these, whether you agree or don't agree, and then the election year, and that adds another layer of complication. And, you know, so many times your reaction is just, what is the use? You know, isn't there something else I can be doing? Is Disney World hiring? What's, what's going on here? And then you have to remind yourselves, hey, man, it, it's more complicated than it seems. There's, these are people, and their lives are confusing, just like mine is, and got to cut them, cut them some slack, you know, and show grace. Let's talk about Annabelle now. Uh, so did this, this movie came out before Annabelle. Is that right? Yes. This is the, this is the introduction of Annabelle to the horror movie world. As far as I know, this is um, so Annabelle is the doll and the it's um, it's not really part of the main story. Right. I mean, this is just sort of helping us know who the who the Warrens are. It's at the very beginning. It's maybe five minutes long or something introducing who the Warrens are. Um, and then the rest of the story is about the parent family and the doll never shows up again. Um, so the. It's it's a it's a cursed Until the doll. End. It or, shows up at the end, right? It, it does. Oh, it does. Connect back yeah, to in the their end. house because yeah. they yes. So they took it. That's right. Um, so there's this doll that is um, supposedly cursed or haunted or possessed or something. The the owners of the doll are 
um, a couple of nurses or nursing students in an apartment. And it, it was a gift. And then it started to do scare, very scary things in their apartment. And they brought in a medium or seance and they learned that there was a, a girl, Annabelle something, who died in this apartment. The Warrens then, in, in a very non, um, a very straightforward way, said, no, no, this isn't a ghost. Um, this is a demon. You've got you've got demons in your house, and uh, but they you know they didn't sound like fanatics. They you know these are this is what they do. We've seen this, and you know they were going to bring about a cleansing, and they they bring the doll, um, and as they keep all from all their many um, cases, they keep an object or or whatever was part of the infestation or oppression or possession. They take those things and keep them safe in a blessed room in their house, which becomes a, in real life, becomes a museum. And there really is an Annabelle doll. It's, it really is there. Um, but uh, a couple, if I may, I just have a couple of comments about the whole Annabelle thing. Yes, there have been spinoff movies about Annabelle the doll and the story there. Scary dolls are scary. They're I don't know if there's other, a lot of other movies about scary dolls, but there are people who are kind of creeped out by dolls. And there might be something to discuss there <laughs> at a moment. But um, when I saw this movie in the theater, so that's at the beginning, and they show like a big screen-filled close-up of the face of this doll. And there was a young couple that walked in late, and they come in right when that face flashes on the screen and the girl <laughs> screams and she throws her popcorn in the air and everybody gets popcorn in their <laughs> lap. No it is, kidding. Yeah, yeah, it scared her. She screamed and went, ah, when the Annabelle face went up there. Um, I just think that's a really kind of interesting side story. I think, and yes, it does kind of appear again, maybe a couple times in the movie. I can think of a couple times. Um, and then, of course, there's the spinoff films. But um, they said that you gave the demon pres um, permission. They said that, um, I think that w an important point they made was that it's not a ghost. These things are demons. And I've been asked that as a you know pastor many times, you know, are, are ghosts real? Do ghosts haunt places and things? And, you know, I tend to try to say, well, the, you know, the biblical evidence doesn't suggest much in that in that direction but usually it's a demonic thing although then at the or through the whole incident with the with the parent family it seems to be a go right it's the ghost of this witch it's not demons am i am i right and that that confused me that is a confusing part of the movie scott mm -hmm. uh because there is clear distinctions between ghosts and demons uh from a biblical point of view which i don't think the the, the movie is necessarily trying to you know, stay biblical on this. But from a biblical point of view, the idea of ghosts is very problematic because what ghosts suggest is that the spirit of a human being is now still roaming the earth. Uh, I don't think you can find any support for that uh, in the scriptures. Uh, you know, the ghost of Samuel, right? I mean, that's about all we've got. But there's no support there for that. Demonic activity, on the other hand, is co complete supernatural uh, beings. These are not humans who have come back. That's a whole nother ball game. So I'm tracking with the film the whole time until all of a sudden it seems like it is a ghost because it's Bathsheba's spirit, right? Who was not a demon. So 
Yeah, Danny, explain that to us. I can't explain it to you, but I was going to, if you did not mention it, that, I mean, that he does name Bathsheba, and him saying her name caused her to react in the same way that, you know, we've had this whole naming of demons thing. So it's all very confusing. Yeah, and Bathsheba, of course, is a biblical name. Uh, not, not Most people don't name their daughters Bathsheba, right? Um, no, it'd be like Judas naming your yeah. son. It's a, it's a bad character. Yeah, no, that's right. So, um, or Jezebel. Jezebel is the name we're, you're worth thinking of, right? Yeah. Bathsheba is who David committed yes. an adulterous yes. affair with. Jezebel with Samson, right? Uh, nevertheless, people still don't name their daughters Bathsheba because of the nature of that story. Uh, but again, man, yeah, I, I was really confused by that too. But did you guys pick up on the fact that they're really trying to make Ed and Lorraine look very reasonable and very respectful? This goes back a little bit to the difference between the two. But how many times did he say, well, I don't really believe in that? Or this is, there's always a practical explanation. Usually there's a, there's a very reasonable explanation. In one scene, he actually shows a couple the reasonable explanation, something in the attic and the pipes were doing something. And they're like, oh, okay, it's not a ghost. He says he doesn't believe in vampires. So it looks like they're really trying to narrow the focus with the couple. Uh, but then there are some serious loose ends there on that. Yeah. And, I, you know, I did... Did you guys do much reading on the parent family? This is a real family. That's really their name. All the names are real. I've read. I just read the basics. The... No, I didn't. So there's there are photos of the cast of this movie with the real people. You can see them together. There, it's it's really interesting. And one of the daughters, who's now grown up, has been writing books and uh, about their her experience. And that you know the movie took license, but. A lot of this stuff is based on what she claims they experienced. And the 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 character or the ghost or whatever, the witch, Bathsheba Sherman, was a real person. I mean, that's that was really this woman's name. And there's some mystery around her death and, and life. It's not quite what the movie shows, but there is something about it. And you can go and see her grave and read about her. And she really is a descendant of one of the Salem witches from the trial. So, I mean, there is some tie to actual uh, reality in this that is kind of interesting to, to read about. Yeah, and it, the connecting back to the Salem witch trials seemed like that interested you, Dan. You said you wanted to pick up on that. Uh, uh, you want to go in that direction? Well, uh, simply that uh, I, it, I really, the, it usually bothers me when they, when the, that there's a connection to Salem witch trials as part of a horror thing because both the European witch trials and the the U.S. or the the colonial witch trials are really awful period in history. Uh, this is these were real people who were accused of things that had not happened, right? And it was a lot of cases of of people just wanting to get revenge or men wanting to you know to get back at women who had you know who had fought off their advances, uh, and a whole lot of women, and some men, but a whole lot of women died at the at, you know, the hands of false accusation, and in horrendous, horrendous ways uh, that involved torture and rape, and I think it always bothers me when the, the source of the evil was the witch trials, when the witch trials were, were fake, right? <laughs> there were these were women put to death for for things they had not done and there's plenty of evidence that there was you know supernatural things were not happening in those cases it was it was all petty revenge and politics especially the european version so so yeah that i that, that was bothered when the witchcraft thing came up 
And it seems like in these movies, they seem to confuse witchcraft with Satanism. Maybe that's a modern distinction that that I've kind of um, adopted a little bit. So, But she mentions that, right? She, she says, well, she was a witch, and she was pledging her life to Satan and killed her son, her child, as a sacrifice to Satan. To, um, I don't know if everyone who thinks of, the, like today, everyone who thinks of themselves as a witch, Satan is kind of not in their picture explicitly you know we could say that that's really where they're going but yeah yeah the original witch trials were obviously linked to to satan like they would look for marks for the where the women had had sex with the devil and you know that sort of things but yeah you're right witchcraft the modern version of witchcraft uh the wicca thing you would not you know they would not believe the devil was a, a being much less worship him Let's jump back to a question you had asked earlier, Scott. We're kind of jumping all over the place here, but you had mentioned Annabelle and the fact that dolls can be scary. And you said, is that just something that, why do people have a fear of dolls? Of course, when most people think of dolls in horror movies, they think of Child's Play with Chucky, which was definitely scary, scary movie. And uh, I had a My Buddy doll when that movie came out, which the Chucky doll you know, looked like a My Buddy doll. It scared my sister to death. One time, I'll never forget, I actually hung uh, my, my my Buddy doll in her room with the door shut, and she opened the door and saw my buddy hanging there from a rope. It was great. Scared her to death. Um, but in 2014, at Halloween Horror Nights 24 in Orlando, Florida, there was a haunted house called Doll House of the Damned. It was just filled with spooky dolls. It was one of the scariest mazes we've been through in all of Halloween Horror Nights uh, history. So, I don't know. Are you scared of dolls, Danny? What does that do for you? I do I do not have, what do they call it? It's a pediophobia? Uh, I do not have that. Uh, however, my wife certainly does. And you talk about scaring your sister. I used to, my wife has a, uh, one of those old Charlie, Charlie McCarthy ventriloquist dolls. That, mm-hmm. that she's scared to death of and it was just hidden in her closet but I would always sneak upstairs and get the Charlie McCarthy and then put it in strange places so she would run into it at 2 o'clock in the morning and scream uh, now that I think about it I might go to her house and her, her parents house and pick that up and maybe do it again but yeah the, there, that is definitely a thing uh, uh, some of my friends have it and we constantly post scary doll pictures on our uh, group message just to bother them yeah, I'm not, I don't have a phobia or fear or anything like that, but I think they get me more than clowns do. You know, it seems like clowns are the, the big thing today. Everybody's scared of clowns and everything, and that, that doesn't bother me at all. Uh, the, the doll was spooky, but I want to ask this question, okay? We talk about dolls. Why are rocking chairs so scary? <laughs> you know, it's like rocking chairs terrify me. They're always rocking, and, and they then they just squeak. stop, right? And every time, it doesn't matter what movie it is, even in like the Evil Dead 2 in the cabin when the rocking chair just stops and turns, I think it's just terrifying. And the, one of the scarier scenes in this that wasn't a jump scare was Annabelle getting her hair brushed by Bathsheba in the rocking chair when the kid was in the room with them. I thought that was really really spooky but what why why are why is a rocking you remember uh well it wasn't a rocking chair was it danny it was a wheelchair in uh the change the changeling yeah yeah, yeah so but, scary yeah but uh rocking chairs rocking on their own is scary but you're absolutely right stopping is when they get really scary like a rocking chair suddenly stopping mid rock is always effective 
<laughs> Haunted objects are effective, right? To things that move on their own, I think those those tend to to work pretty well in horror films. The little speaking of the changeling, just that ball bouncing down the stairs, and and they make kind of a reference to it in in, in this on the in the they Conjuring, uh, just a ball bouncing around on its own. That's frightening. Yeah, and it starts again. It starts that with these little things, the doors creaking open. I mean, at some point, you could say, "Oh my gosh, are you kidding me?" But the movie was just still so well done that it it didn't detract from the enjoyment of the film. Are you scared of dolls, Scott? So, um, no, I'm not. But this has actually been studied uh, by psychologists and others because of the advances being made in robotics and artificial intelligence today. AI, like Siri and um, maybe video AI and uh, so, so on. They, what they call it is the uncanny valley. So they're saying that if something like a robot or a doll, but a robot, if it's super, super realistic so that you can't even tell, you know, like maybe data from Star Trek, that's um that's not scary or if it's super unrealistic a robot or something like this like robbie the robot okay that doesn't look anything like a human that's not scary but if it's in the middle where it kind of looks realistic but obviously isn't quite real that's called the uncanny valley and it's it is disturbing and so when they're making robots they have to they're actually trying to make some sometimes like in japan when they make robots that are helping people in the hospital or nursing homes they don't want them to look too realistic because it'd be creepy, scary. They, they make them look like robots on purpose. So there is something, I don't know why, but there is something about the doll that is, that is you know, if it's a Raggedy Ann doll, a real Raggedy Ann doll, that doesn't scare me. But this doll, <laughs> because it had it was like porcelain and painted and a little more realistic, it was in that uncanny valley, I think. Which is funny because the original Annabelle, the one that's actually, was a Raggedy Ann doll. So, yeah. so they would want to make it different uh, and scarier for the movies. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, two unrelated things connected to robots is, first of all, we all know the greatest robots of all time were um, the guy in Halloween 2, his robots. Those guys were amazing. And second... Did you know that Sylvester Stallone is releasing Rocky for the director's edition, 30th anniversary, and he's taking out the robot from the movie? Your thoughts, Danny? I don't know that I remembered there was a robot in the movie. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so you're not a Rocky it, fan. Then. Oh, I am. But, uh, that, gosh, I probably haven't seen that since it was in the theater. Is that the Russian? It's that- a, it's essential to the plot, man. Yeah, it's the Russian. Like R- Rocky is like a billionaire now, and he's got his mansion and he's got a robot that Polly basically ends up falling in love with. Oh, you're Polly, making you're making this up. That, absolutely no. not. It's essential. <laughs> it's absolutely essential. And if you watch the ESPN Thirty for Thirty documentary where they spoof Rocky Four, it's it's the most hilarious thing you have ever seen in your life. The best Thirty for Thirty ever about Rocky Four. How Sylvester Stallone, Rocky Balboa, ends the Cold War. And in the in the theater, they say, the guy goes, hey, I interviewed Rocky right about the time, you know, that he fought Ivan Drago. And he, he was retired, man. He just wanted to live the rest of his life with his kids and his robot. <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, it's hilarious. But I guess Rocky or Sylvester Stallone feels like he needs to take that out of the movie now. So he's getting a lot of pushback on this, you know, because of the robot. 
Scott, you have any idea what I'm talking about? Not really. I I, I saw the movie, but it's been decades, <laughs> or however long. I can't believe, Danny, you don't remember the robot. Uh, it is crazy, but I do not. Um, and I was a huge Rocky fan, but really just the first two movies, to be fair. <laughs> it's pretty far downhill from there for me. Oh man, come on! No, do you ever uh, listen or you know the sports guy? Uh, who does the podcast Grantland is what he had, and now he's on doing his own thing. Y'all know who I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I, I listen to him. Is. Yeah, he's a huge Rocky fan. So he he talks about Rocky Three all the time he, with Mr. T and everything. And anyway, it's it's just a lot of fun. But I couldn't believe it. The Sylvester Stallone taking the robot out. Hey, let me ask this question: Why was the cop hanging out with them? Like, how did that work out? Number one, he wasn't even a believer, so he he was a skeptic. And how did they convince him to just come hang out at this house all the time when, you know, doesn't he have other things to do, like arrest people and stuff? What was going on there? I think he was just hired and working security, basically. I think he was just part of their crew. Um, I, if I, I might be misremembering this, but I think Ed, the historical Ed, was actually an ex-cop. So he may have used off-duty cops as part of his team. Yeah, so maybe he's just like a, a, a on the yeah, side kind of job or something. Yeah, that and it may have been here. based on an actual person that took part. Well, in the movie, he does. There is a point. You know how they because they spent the night, right? They were there trying to right. catch a recording and all this. They had all this tech set up, and then the next morning, the family and they're all sitting, and the investigators are all sitting around the kitchen table having flapjacks and having a great experience family experience the guy then says the guy you're talking about says oh i got a shift i gotta go and so right. he is doing this as a moonlight literally a moonlighting thing yeah i took it the way danny said is that he's just a hired helper who's just an assistant they have their tech assistant that other younger man i forget his name drew or something and he's the one that kind of was more the techie and then this guy, yeah, who didn't believe in the paranormal until he did. And it was kind of hard to explain away by the end. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's what that was. Yeah. Do you know, did I miss, how do the birds make a connection? It seemed like everything else in the film was explained by the previous incidents, the tree, the hangings, the cellar, everything had its place. Did I miss something with the birds? What was going on there? I don't think you missed anything. I don't. I don't remember anything. It's just you know every film we've covered, I think, has had in this exorcism block has had a scene where lots of animals come to the exorcism. Well, and um, I, you know, it seems like it's kind of one of those things that you know strange occurrences. There's so many things that you see, like sounds, the smells, the cold spots in the house, mysterious physical things move objects move there's just these things that you get with haunted houses or possessions and we got it with the dog right the dog sadie when the parent family were moving in the dog sensed something bad and didn't want to go in the house and then ends up late, later getting killed and mutilated and then these birds are flying i just think it's just trying to show that nature itself is being um, disturbed that's how i read that okay I, I think I took it a little differently. Like the dog was afraid to go into the house. Okay? So that, to me, I, he was like, he sensed something was wrong here. It seemed to me like the birds were kind of evil, like trying to get in and were doing some damage and had a direct, were making direct lines. Like at one point, didn't one crash into the window and is still trying to work his way in? Or One actually gets in and interrupts the exorcism. Yeah. 
I don't know. I just, it seemed like there was something more intentional about it. It didn't feel any different to me than the rats coming in and the priest or, you know, the roaches and. It was pretty- oh, you mean in different movies? Yeah. yeah it's just yeah, that everything yeah. else in this film, they, they made a real point to connect it back to something previous in the history of the house. All the, all the important settings that there was a bridge to connect back, except the birds, it seemed like. No big deal. I just, just an observation. Because the birds definitely came back. You know, at first they see, he sees the one bird die. And then later, man, they're all over the place, you know. And hey, by the way, I had a bird fly into my house last week. Have you ever tried to shoo a bird out of your house? Birds are frightening when they get in your house. Nature where it's not supposed to be is always frightening. Yeah, uh, because they go to the highest point. Yeah. So you, we trapped him in a room trying to shoo him out the window, but he's, he doesn't want to go out the window because he's scared. So he's going to the highest place he can get. It was really, really challenging. We actually, I basically just had to leave the window open and he eventually flew out. We actually lost a bird in our house the last winter. Uh, couldn't find it after it came in, and then the next morning it was on top of the curtains and we just let it out. It was, yeah. it was like it was just hanging out waiting for someone to open the door. One more thing uh, that's on my list I want to talk about, and it's Ed. At the end, uh, he doesn't have time for the priest to come. He's going to have to do this exorcism on his own. He had hinted, you know, previously in the movie that he had been a part of exorcism. Seems like he knows what he's doing. He's a spiritual person. And Lorraine's like, yep, he can do it. You know, she's got faith in him. So he starts the exorcism. But I liked this. I liked the way they did it. Because when he begins the exorcism, he doesn't do it in a way that is nonchalant or that is overly confident they could have gone that route they could have gone the route as i'm as i'm as good as a priest is i'm just going to come in and bam here's here's the right i'm going to recite it here's my crucifix here's the holy water let me just have this kind of steadfast resolve and boom we're going to get this done but no uh, his eyes are wide-eyed he stops mid-sentence a lot of times he can't believe what he's seeing <laughs> actually this is so horrible that i thought of this but I actually thought of Ghostbusters the first time they get called uh, to that motel, you know, to get the uh, to get the ghost where Egon says one of the funniest lines in cinematic history. I looked at the trap, Ray. You know, they were all believers. They thought the ghost, they created this. But then when they actually got there, they were like, oh, my gosh, this is real. That's the way I felt about Ed. He obviously was a believer. But once he started the exorcism, he realized he was in uncharted territory. And I, I thought Patrick Wilson did a very good job saying I believe, but I'm still kind of in awe here of what I'm seeing. What do y'all think? I like that he struggled with the Latin. As a, as a person with four years of Latin in college, I struggle with Latin still. And he didn't just smoothly get it out of there. He stuttered, had to, had to start over on a couple of lines. I appreciated that. Yeah. I liked yeah, how, a- I, I liked how the, as I've said before, I liked how the Warrens are portrayed. They, they just seem sincere. They don't seem sensational. They don't seem like they're kooks. Um, they don't seem like they're just in it for money and this is all a charlatan. They just seem sincere. Like they buy this and they've seen it. And they also seem like they have a mission. They believe this is what they are for, why they are together. And he just, yeah, he just came across as a sincere, normal, the kind of guy you'd like to have as your neighbor. That kind of guy. And I think both Vera Farmiga and, and Patrick Wilson did a great job. I liked all the actors. Lily Taylor is the parent mom. And, but, um, yeah, I, 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 I thought that Patrick Wilson just really pulled that together. You know, it's hard for me to watch anything that Ron Livingston is in without 
thinking back to his performance in Office Space, it's just it's just so hard. He kind of kind of his just nonchalant. You know, I don't really care. Fire me, whatever. No matter what he does, I see that in him. You know, which is not fair to him at all. But he he does kind of have that laid back personality, even in this film. You know, he's he he's there and he loves his family, but he's still kind of that gentle. You know. Uh, presence. <laughs> so funny. Anything else, guys, y'all want to talk about? Weren't you going to ask us which of the movies we... Yeah, yeah, thank you for reminding me on that. So uh, let's do that. Uh, six weeks now of Exorcism film, six podcasts in season one. Uh, does one of them stick out as your favorite discussion that we've been able to have uh, from one down to six? Uh, Scott, I'll start with you. What, what do you think, brother? I... They're all. I think we've picked good movies, and I recommend them at different intensity. But I really w- was excited by that South Korean movie called The Priests. That one was I hadn't seen it before. I'd seen most of these others or all these others before, and and it just was unexpected. It was in a different context. It was you know all the stuff we said when we watched it and reviewed it. That for me stood out amongst the others. Go for it, Danny. Oh, okay. Um... <laughs> I, uh, as far as the interesting to talk about, the, the priest also was probably the biggest surprise and most positive surprise for me. Um, but for the actual podcast recording, I would go with The Exorcist 3 simply because we had disagreement. And it, it's always more interesting for me to, it's just like when I'm teaching a class, I want pushback from the students when we're discussing stuff. And uh, I, I like the, the conversation that comes up when a group of people who are interested and knowledgeable disagree on something. So I thought Exodus three with our disagreement was the more, most interesting uh, recording. Uh, I enjoyed all of them. I, I think that it's hard to pick just one. Um, but if I did, I, you know, when we got started on the exorcist, the original, the classic, it got the season started. Uh, we were pretty hyped up about that. And I thought we had a really great conversation, you know, uh, about that original movie, and we, we touched in a lot of areas, science versus faith, uh, the credibility of um, the church, a lot of the elements that we talked about in The Exorcist, we have repeated through the rest of uh, the season, the other five episodes, and that's a great testimony to how important that movie was, how it set the stage for everything else that would follow, uh, so I really enjoyed our discussion there. We would love to hear from you. What was your favorite of season one, or talk to us about here Uh, the conjuring that we just discussed. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. Tell your friends about us. Um, Yeah, it's good to be in community here with horror movies. So on behalf of Scott and Danny, we will see you next season right here at The Blackest Eyes. Stay scared. Take care.